the name that I just wrote down was George Ann Hopkins. She said her, everybody called her George. She used a safety pin to, because apparently her blue slacks were a bit too big. It was this murder in particular, whether or not it was something she said or whether or not it was just a, a realization that he had on his own, this I think was the moment where he was like, there's no, there's no turning back. It wasn't just that one mistake. It, this is now my life. I'm investigative reporter Chris Halsney, and this is Interview with Evil, Ted Bundy's FBI Confessions. This podcast is not about the nuts and bolts of Bundy's crimes. Those have been covered ad nauseum over the past 40 years. This is, however, a rare opportunity to hear him candidly admit to some of the more gruesome aspects of his twisted mind, like why he used a tiny hacksaw to lop the heads off many of his victims. It was a, sort of a crude attempt to disguise the identity or, or avoid I mean, uh, the identification of the remains. I had a metal toolkit in front of the, 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 the trunk, such as it is in the Volkswagen. And I had everything in there. I mean, you know, all the, the tools you need to repair a Volkswagen, just like any toolkit metric stuff. And in there was a hacksaw. The in-person interview was recorded on cassette tapes only a few days before Bundy's death row execution in January of 1989. I've tracked down some of the world's leading experts on the criminal mind, and I'm asking the question, does understanding Ted Bundy help law enforcement officers catch serial killers of the future? Forget the moralizing, like I get it, like if you want to moralize, please be my guest, but if you want to forget that for a second, just look at what he does have to offer, and it's quite a lot, and I think that's important to remember. Um, so we don't discount the words of anybody because there's value. There's so much we can learn. The temperature's well below minus 40, and that's actually... How long will the cold last? I think a lot of people have been wondering that as they shiver outside. I'm told Calgary is paradise in the summer, but that's not when I chose to fly to Canada. Instead, I lined up an interview with Dr. Sasha Reed in the dead of winter and on one of the coldest days of the century. For those who have to be outside, it is going to be a tough one. Gil so I just want to talk about you a little bit yeah. first. Oh, okay, sure. Her downtown condo she shares with her surgical resident husband and cat became our sound studio. 109876. I wanted to hear what the world's most distinguished serial killer expert had to say about Ted Bundy. Also in the area, maybe 50 yards to the east, down into another ravine was an old abandoned cabin. Ring a bell? And on the flip side, Dr. Reed was eager to hear my audio recordings. Every time I hear something new, a new audio, something I've not encountered before, it gives me a new appreciation for and a respect for and an understanding of human psychology. Dr. Sasha Reed is a developmental psychologist and criminologist currently teaching at the University of Calgary. Her passion and job is analyzing serial killers and what makes them tick. And I do that primarily by way of analyzing their diaries, their speech patterns and things like interviews, and well, 
autobiographies, which are always interesting and very self-serving. She didn't admit to any childhood trauma that sent her looking for answers. Rather, she told me she's been fascinated with fear and the unknown for as long as she can remember. I think that there's a little bit of a, a thrill and excitement of thinking that maybe something scary is out there. At least that's what it was like when I was a kid. And then I grew up and I realized that, oh, like maybe things like vampires and, and werewolves don't actually exist, sadly. But monsters, in big air quotes, monsters do exist. And the scariest thing is that they look just like me and you. They're just like me and you. They don't have fangs or claws. They don't have, you know, scars and boils. They can be beautiful. They can be porcelain skin, blonde hair, blue eyes, and beautiful smiles. They can own candy shops. Like, they can be just like you and I. Dr. Reed says when she first started really studying serial killers, she built a database of 75 killers with 330 variables and found not one single common denominator. How's that possible? I just ran basic frequency uh, statistics and I did some chi-square analyses and absolutely nothing. I actually, I spent that summer taking a break because it was so demoralizing to not have seen anything statistically significant. And when I say developmental variables, we were looking at things like um, were they abused as a child? Um, uh, was their mother or father an addict? Um, were they a loner? Were they bullied in school? Uh, were they criminals uh, or juvenile delinquents early on? None of this had anything to do with anything. Um, and so I took a break because I didn't know what I wanted to do and I went and I worked in a prison. While inside lockup, she had an awakening. A hardened criminal's reality, or more importantly, their perceived reality, can't be fully captured in raw statistics. And when I was there, I was working with the most interesting group of offenders. I had a group of antisocial males, a group of uh, females with schizophrenia. I had domestic violence um, individual, somebody who was a rapist. I had a crip gang member, a psychopath, and a bunch of other colorful fellows. <laughs> um, and in my sessions with them, I came to realize that they saw the world so much differently than the rest of the people that I knew. She asked her eclectic group one simple question. If you were to get on a bus in Toronto with 100 random passengers, how many of them would you think have been to jail? Their answer was 80. The real answer is about one. And so I stepped away from quantitative data and I started collecting all of these interviews and transcripts with serial killers and started going through that data and analyzing it. And oh my God, what a pattern emerged. We saw things like, well, I mean, they see themselves as a victim 100% of the time, all the time. They, they don't do anything wrong. It's always somebody else who's inflicting trauma. Let's stop there. Serial killers always see themselves as victims. That's what they have in common? Think about that. John Wayne Gacy tortured 33 young men and boys, then killed each one either by asphyxiating them or twisting a garret around their necks. He sees himself as a victim. 
And Dr. Reed's comment here brings me back to Ted Bundy's FBI confessions. It puts this poor me segment in context. You know, I make no bones about it. I am looking for an opportunity to tell the story as best I can in the way that makes sense to me and the way that will help not just you or the families, but that's very important, but also to help my own family. You see, I saw the look in my stepson's eyes yesterday after he had been told for the first time that, you see, he's always believed in his heart. I mean, he always wanted to believe that I had never done anything like this. As hard as it may be for you to believe that, there are people who do believe that, and there are people close to me who believe that. And to see the look in his eyes uh, confirmed my worst fears. See, he says, could you, he, he, was, he was just absolutely astounded. He couldn't understand. And he was writing me questions, just furiously writing questions. I could see that, you know, that he was, you know, how really bewildered he was. And I need to give him a chance to know, and others a chance to know what was really going on, what it was really like for me. This is such a narcissist. It's, it's purely narcissistic. I mean, you hear a lot of me, and then as soon as he says me, he's like my family. So he's very, very quick to reposition away from himself because he knows he's not going to be getting sympathy from these people. In addition to all being victims, Dr. Reed noticed one more, perhaps more obvious trend. They are completely disturbed in the way that they understand death. Um, and this was for everybody. These are things that were commonalities. I didn't see any commonalities with the quantitative data. So as soon as I started understanding the way they saw the world and the way they thought, I combined that with the quantitative and the whole world opened up. <laughs> I could finally make sense. Now Dr. Reed has expanded her serial killer database list to nearly 6,000 murderers worldwide. There are 1,440 different categories in drop-down menus under each name. She didn't want to include mass murderers, like the Las Vegas music concert sniper Stephen Paddock, who killed at least 58 and wounded 413 people from a window at the Mandalay Bay Hotel. So to keep everything consistent, she had to come up with her own definition of serial killer. It's called compulsive criminal homicide. And there's many, many things. So a person has to kill two or more people over an undefined period of time. Um, and in, in between the murders, there is this, I wouldn't call it a cooling off period, but it's a period where they kind of return to a psychological sense or state of calm, just a normative level of functioning. Um, the murders are not carried out at the behest of another or, I don't know, because of revenge purposes, nothing like that. It's not financially motivated. Um, it has to be something that you do intentionally and purposefully so you can't be psychotic, which I know causes a little bit of, I don't know, ruffled feathers. But for me, you have to have conscious deliberation. You're choosing people who simply want to kill someone. Not only just kill, but somebody who derives pleasure from acquiring a victim, watching, stalking that victim, um, sometimes, in some instances, the murder is just something that happens because they don't want to get caught. They don't want a witness. They want to just make sure that, you know, they're, they're going to get away with it. Sometimes the pleasure comes from the act of hunting. 
But at the end of the day, they still kill somebody. You have to still have that two or more murders. Dr. Reed has studied the most notorious murderers in history. Son of Sam, the Green River Killer, Jeffrey Dahmer, but Bundy. Bundy is really special. It's rare to be able to, to listen to a serial killer talk eloquently um, and with what appears to be a very good amount of insight for such a long period of time. You've got interviews with like Joel Rifkin and Gary Ridgway, but there's snippets, there's five minutes here, five minutes there. With Ted, he goes on and on and on, and he's a good storyteller. This would have been in early 84, it's in 74. How about the Evergreen College girl? Oh yeah, that, that's right, yeah. Where is she? Well, she's up in the mountains. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Uh, up in the Cascades. Yeah. A reminder here for those who might have skipped the first podcast. The audio you're listening to is Ted Bundy talking to FBI criminal profiler William Bill Hegmeyer and former King County Washington Sheriff's Detective Bob Keppel. I hear you, Bob. Uh, you have as uh, you have a legitimate need to know it all and you want to and of course you want to start with that which is most uh, obvious that is the identities and numbers and dates and that's important. There's a lot more important stuff and I've never spoken to anybody about this. Bundy is set to be executed in the electric chair, Old Sparky, in two days. And he's hoping if he starts telling investigators, after many years of maintaining his innocence, details of his crimes, they will go to bat for him with Florida's governor, who has the power to postpone the death sentence. Put it on stop. Okay, the date is 1-20-89. As Bundy begins the interrogation, there's no other way to put it. He's in charge, actually in command of how the police are going to talk to him and what he's going to offer. I'm going to play this from when the detectives first hit record and let it go unedited for a while so you can hear Bundy's tone and attitude, word choices, and aggression. Okay, how do I expect us to proceed? Well, this is what I hope we can uh, together uh, work on. You know, I think what I need to do is tell you what's going on uh, for me in terms of the practical day-to-day -day stuff and, I mean, hour-to-hour -hour stuff, the pressures I'm under, limitations, you might say, as you, under, you can understand that, uh, I'm sure, and appreciate that this phase two death watch, it obviously puts us under some kind of constraints. But I think we can uh, we can get started. Okay. Uh, what we need to, what I need to do is just like I say how to proceed. And I uh, first thing I have on my list is uh, talk about the importance of at this at this stage of uh, that we have an agreement of confidentiality. That, that I certainly won't make any statements about this meeting. That Diana won't. That none of us do until, you know. Certainly, we we're much further down the road. Too, too much has been said already. You know, you know, that's killing us. Now, what kind of a confidentiality length of time are you talking about? Are you talking about some other local law enforcement agencies? Well, well, we're talking about. Our meeting here today, um, you know, let's say through Monday, and that we, 
have an understanding that uh, any any statements you make to the public that uh, that any of us make to the public, we will um, we will advise the other the other party that we're going to make any kind of statements. Okay. My policy at this point was I wasn't making any statements. No, nothing whatsoever. And you you certainly have um, uh, my word on it. And I, as you know, I have not spoken to the press and, and do not, well, I'm not saying I will intend to, but I'm not going to talk about this meeting. I don't know if I'm going to say anything or, or what I'm going to say. It probably depends a lot on what things look like Monday. Uh, but I certainly would not disclose anything that you, uh, we had an understanding specifically that I was not to disclose. What don't you hear? Fear. Dr. Reed told me that's partly due to Bundy's IQ. He might actually believe he's going to use his silver tongue to escape justice. I do think that he starts off with this sense of urgency to an extent, but he's still, he's still composed. He's still able to, to exert himself as somebody who is dominant. I have this knowledge. Let's work together. He uses the word we a lot. So he's almost positioning himself in line with everybody else. So he's not, you know, some person out there on his own island. He's working with people. That's what it sounds like what, what he's trying he's to do. He's part of the detective team. Very much so, yeah. Yeah, because I have the word we. It's big and it's written multiple times. And like, we have an agreement. So he does position himself as a lead. I'm looking for us to find a way that we can reach the point where I can start to talk about some things. Okay, my... <laughs> my feeling is, and I want the react your reaction and Bill's reaction to this, but it, it's my feeling, and it, it's... I think it, it, it's not unrealistic to say that I simply don't have enough time to tell you or anybody else all that I, that I know and need to tell you in the next two or three days which is basically what we're looking at. I mean, I might as well give you right up front, you know, how I, how I see this in terms of my participation. I mean, I'm, I'm at the point where, you know, you might say, I mean, I'm at the point, finally, where I see that I'm going to have to tell you and, and others everything that I know with regard to so-called unsolved cases. Okay. Now, you can look at it, look at it uh, pessimistically or skeptically or whatever, but the fact is I'm at that point where and it's, it's an uncomfortable position. I may have obviously waited too long, but I'm here and we're here. So we've got to work with what we've got. So not only is he part of this investigative team, but he's the lead of this team. He is the guy who's driving everything. He's got the secret knowledge that everybody wants. So it's enticing, but it's interesting. He balances this very well where he's like, you need to listen to me. I'm the lead, but at the same time, it's us together, we. So it's really interesting how he makes this very brilliant balance between I've got all the secret knowledge, but we're an investigative team. Sure, I can give you cooperation on. I'll, I'll listen, I know what you're pushing for, and I don't blame you. This still working? You sort through your litany of cases, and go through your mind. You, you want to pick. I don't want to get 
in a position of telling you, but pick one more case other than the the Issaquah, the other two Issaquah cases. I, I don't I, that you want to know about, and we'll talk about it. I just want that you want some cooperation on, and I'll give you one more. Keppel has used his copy of the recordings to write a book and do speaking engagements about Bundy, but he has never released the raw recordings, only short snippets. A friend of his tells me that's because Keppel promised the family of 18-year-old victim Georgianne Hawkins he wouldn't. That I, again, knocked her unconscious and strangled her and drug her into uh, about 10 yards into the small grove of trees that was there. Until I acquired the unredacted four-and-a-half-hour set, I'm told the FBI had the only other known copy, and just to double-check, I filed a Freedom of Information Act request with both the state of Washington and the FBI, and both said they would not release the recordings. On the other hand, my position is for a bit to be a benefit, truly a benefit to you and, and law enforcement and social scientists, I've got to tell you the whole truth and nothing, nothing more, nothing less, certainly nothing less. And um, Bill knows, uh, you know, Bill's familiar, you're familiar with the FBI studies on uh, serial murder and how important it is to get the antecedent behaviors and all that background stuff, put it all together in the context of hardcore data. And I think it's a t what I'm after is a, a total understanding here. Now, I realize people are very skeptical of me and perhaps skeptical of my intentions. And they have good reason to be, I guess. I mean, it's, you, know, uh, you can look at me as a hypocrite at this point that I've waited so long, but the fact is, better late than never, we're at the point where something can be done. For several hours of the so-called interrogation, Bundy whines and pleads and manipulates he teases, but he does not talk about specific facts except for a handful of victims. He does talk about 19-year-old Donna Gail Manson, 23-year-old Janice Ann Ott, and 18-year-old Denise Marie Nasland. Those last two went missing on the same day, kidnapped from a state park outside Seattle in broad daylight. Bundy does give a full play-by-play -play of the killing of Georgianne Hawkins. She was the Puyallup Daffodil Princess who went missing in June of 1974 after leaving her boyfriend's fraternity house on the University of Washington campus. That was covered heavily in part one of this podcast. After describing her kidnapping and murder in excruciating detail, Bundy suddenly started holding back. Oh, 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 that, that, that. oh excuse me. In this part of the interview, Detective Keppel pressed Bundy about why he didn't talk about raping Hawkins. And we'll have to get back to it sometime, but I don't feel, I just, it's just too hard for me to talk about. Gee, this is probably the hardest part, I don't know. I know we're talking sort of, ab not abstractly before, but uh, no, we're getting into some, we're getting right down to it. And, uh, I will talk about it. It's just, I hope you understand, it's not something that uh, I find easy to talk about. At one point, about an hour into the interrogation, Detective Keppel realizes Bundy isn't simply a monstrous rapist who refused to admit to the violent act, but that Bundy is a necrophiliac, someone who has sex with the dead. Had you gone back there before that period of time? Mm-hmm. The next day. The next day. What did you do the next day? 
just went back to check out the site, um, make sure nothing had been left there. Uh, see, you know, the feeling is I reached the, the, the point and, and half expected that she might not even be there, that you know, for somehow that I hadn't even killed her, if you will. Okay, how about getting back to going back to this? Again? Okay. Maybe about a week to two weeks later, I went back for a third time. Yeah. Which one? Again, just to see what was going on. You know, there's a lot of psychological stuff going on here that we just don't have time for. I mean, we could spend days explaining. I, can, yeah. I mean, there is a there is a there is an aspect here of, uh, you know, the, the possessiveness Bill has talked about, and you, I'm sure you're familiar with the, you know, the after effects. Uh, and this is why I am so keen on the staking out of crime scenes of this type afterwards. Fascination with death, necrophilia, all that. Um, uh, but of course, after you know, in June, after a week, it's you know what with all the local the wildlife, but there's not much left. Were you going back to that scene to commit sex acts? Well, that's I don't want to talk about that right now. We will talk about it someday, but I don't have I, we don't not I don't really have enough to give you the background on that. I want us to work into that. Dr. Reed says her research found Bundy was always suspected of having sex with corpses, but never actually flat out states it in any public record. These recordings are as close as he gets. We know that Ted Bundy is a necrophile, and we know this because of what investigators and what legal individuals, legal actors have shared we don't know the extent of it. He doesn't, he's not open about this. And I think that it's something that he's deeply ashamed of. Um, and, you know, again, there's this whole big thing with psychopaths not being able to feel shame. And I think it's really important to kind of deconstruct what we know about psychopathy because I also think it really helps us to better understand the personality of somebody like Ted. When people think psychopath, they think no guilt, no remorse, no emotions at all. And that's absolutely fundamentally flawed thinking. It's very black and white. And that's just not the way that human beings are. It doesn't matter what pathology you have. That's not the way we are. We operate on, on gradients. So yes, he might have felt extreme shame. Yes, I think when it comes to things like necrophilia or the deeper aspects and psychology behind his crimes, he feels shame. Of course he does. It looks different and it makes sense in a different way than it would for us, but of course he feels it. And he's not going to want to share that because it's uncomfortable for him. Basically, I hate to be blunt, but who cares? I mean, you know, he's, you know, do we already, I'm going to use language that's a little tough, but this guy is a real sick fuck, okay? Dr. Ken Muscatel has interviewed more than 700 murderers in counting as a forensic neuropsychologist. He listened with great interest to the FBI Bundy confession recordings with us inside his Seattle office. When it came to the sections where Bundy was implying about having sex with his dead victims, Dr. Muscatel grew flat out angry. This guy's a bad, so like he's already killed, made her suffer. So if she has sex with her corpse, 
in a sense like, okay, who cares? I hate to be blunt. It would, it, most people would care, but I mean, who cares in the sense of like the horror? The horror was done while she was alive. He may have sexually assaulted her. In fact, he's saying he may have, in fact, sexually assaulted her while she was alive or while she was dying. He's, he's not saying almost anything about her suffering, her experience. If he sexually assaulted her or didn't sexually assault her, but just strangled her and looking in her eyes or watching her die. I mean, all those things are, and what are the sounds she made, all these things of that human experience and the horror, that's what he's not talking about, not giving you. But he's giving you this little teaser about, well, I don't want to talk about, you know, whether I had sex with her dead body. I just, it's just too hard for me to talk about right now. Why is he okay talking about putting a cord around her neck, but then not about raping her? Serial killers, from my research, they define themselves and describe themselves very, very similarly. So there's the the good man. And this is the person that we all see. It's the face that's practiced. It's the person who, you know, goes to the community meetings and, you know, they have a Facebook page and everyone knows them and, and they know them to be a good person. It's the person who neighbors say, I, I can't believe he would have done such a thing. That's the good man. And the serial killer knows that they are that person but they also are very aware of what they call or what I call what Arthur Shawcross has called the bad man and the bad man is the face the the person that is unpracticed that is known only to the serial killer and the victim it's the part of their most intimate self and I think Ted knows both. He's very well acquainted with both. He personally accepts both, but he doesn't always accept their actions. I understand that at the, the Issaquah site, which I could describe to you, uh, would describe to you if you want, there were three, uh, remains of three individuals found, two identified and one not because of the the uh, so few, the kinds of remains that were found were so few, unidentifiable. Okay, what do you want? Uh, where this description of the site first? How to get there? I mean, you just don't, you just don't make this up. Now we're going to talk about hunting. This isn't out of left field. Dr. Reed has found powerful connections between how hunters experience killing animals for sport, and serial killers kill humans for pleasure. He would not have just killed and then forgotten about it. This would have been something he he sat with and thought about and reminisced about. He probably would have made that drive several times. Again, just to relive the hunt. If you talk to a hunter, for example, and you're asking them, where did you get your last moose or deer kill? They will describe in as much detail the trees, the grass, like they will remember. And I think the reason why they have such a, a keen visual memory 15 years later, it was to a certain extent a hunt. It was a visceral, very, very primitive action. He's probably, at this time that he's describing this, smelling the same smells that 
he would have encountered on the way to that cabin. He's probably seeing in great detail everything that he saw because it was a great hunt, a great kill. And as guys like Bundy kill again and again, research shows they delete certain memories from their brain archives and keep other key memories to themselves, a sort of private mental lockbox. I think the reason why serial killers keep some things to themselves, it varies. And it's not the same for everybody, obviously, but there's a couple of things that I've come across in my research. So the first thing, people actually just forget. The moment the event was so trivial, it wasn't the murder they were looking for, it was that release of a building tension, and they got that, and then it was like the world just faded away. They forget, and that's sad and horrible given the emotional trauma and pain that the families you know, endure and suffer, but one, they forget. Two, leverage, right? I know more and I can share more in exchange for. Three, those are your secrets. Those are your prizes. It's like letting somebody into your underwear drawer. Like you don't want somebody touching something that is so personal, so private. Maybe even something that's very arousing. It's getting too vulnerable with another person because your victims who you choose and how you choose to victimize reveals quite a lot about you and your psychology, your traumas, your pain. Right? Some people don't want to share things with their own psychologists and this would essentially for some people be just that. By opening up and sharing what they did, they're letting you into their mind, their psychology. And also I guess for, there's an enormous amount of pleasure by having something that remains only yours. It's not the fear of like letting somebody in, but it's the pleasure of knowing something so grotesque, so violent, so heinous, but it's still your secret. It's possessive and pleasurable. I'm investigative reporter Chris Halsney. Coming up next on Interview with Evil, Ted Bundy's FBI confessions, how close Bundy was to getting caught before he even got started that no more than two weeks before that I have been doing, using the same modus operandi in the same neighborhood in, and in front, in front now of the same sorority house. George Ann Hawkins disappeared from, I encountered a girl going out the door. The guy's a pathological liar to start with. I mean, you can't tell that from what he's saying, but he's a pathological bullshit artist and we speak with one of the FBI's original criminal profilers, how this interrogation might have gone differently had he been in the room. He's doing everything he can right now to divert them away from the main topic, and they're getting absolutely nowhere. I, I mean, at this point, I would, I'd be really mad, you know, um, and say, look, you're either gonna get to the point of what we're trying to talk about rather than talking about left turns across the divided highway, or I'm gonna bang you upside the head. And that's straight up, buddy. To download exclusive content, more raw, unredacted recordings of Ted Bundy admitting to various crimes, please visit the Interview with Evil Patreon account.